Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Ben Cohen. He covers the NBA for the Wall Street Journal, and he has a new book out, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. If you've ever played basketball, hit a few buckets in a row and thought to yourself, hey man, I'm hot, and you have this innate sense that the next shot you throw toward the basket is going in, you've experienced the hot hand. Your teammates want to pass to you, the defense starts to adjust. The only problem is the hot hand doesn't exist. A bunch of academics looked into the data for NBA shooters in the 1980s and they found no evidence for the hot hand. But wait, when looking at scientists and artists, another group of researchers did see evidence for a hot hand. And it gets more strange when we go into a casino and red comes up on the roulette wheel five times in a row, our intuition is to bet against the streak. In this case, we don't believe in the hot hand. And what about picking stocks? We cover all this and more. Ben Cohen helps us sort it all out and learn some valuable lessons about streaks and finding patterns that we can apply to make better decisions and maybe, just maybe, create the conditions in our own lives and our own careers to get the hot hand. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ben as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Ben Cohen. on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Ben Cohen, welcome to The Good Life. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here, and I'm really excited about the topic of our discussion, which is streaks. When something happens, and it happens again, and it happens again, and at some point it stops happening, and we see this in stocks, we see it in bestseller lists, we see it in all kinds of facets of life, and you wrote a book about it called The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. It's really fascinating. So I thought we would start with Stephen Curry, the NBA star, and a night at Madison Square Garden that really sort of changed things for Curry and maybe even for the NBA. What happened to Curry that night? February 27th, 2013. The Golden State Warriors were not quite the NBA team that would soon become one of the greatest dynasties that sports has ever seen. Stephen Curry was not a revolutionary NBA player either at the time. In fact, he was just like a pretty good player and the Warriors were a mediocre team. And that all changed that night. This was the night that changed Steph Curry's life and it changed the fate of the Warriors and really the future of the entire NBA and basketball around the world. Because what happened that night at Madison Square Garden is that Steph Curry got hot. And what I mean by that is that he scored 54 points, which until last week was the most points he had ever scored in a game ever. He made 11 of his 13 three-pointers, which was more three-pointers than he had ever made or taken in a single game before. It was basically the greatest shooting night for the greatest shooter that the world has ever seen. And the question is, what happened? Like, why did that happen? And is there any way of being able to predict that would happen? And the answer for Steph Curry is absolutely not. In fact, if you had asked him a few minutes before tip-off that night, whether it would be a game in which he played well, let alone the best game that he ever played, he would have looked at you like you had eight heads. The Warriors had played a game the night before. They had gotten into a fight, actually, and Steph Curry was kind of responsible for instigating the fight. 
The problem for Steph Curry for his entire life was that he had been too small to play basketball, or at least to be really good at basketball. That night, it was actually his improbable advantage because when you're small, you can't really do any damage in a fight of NBA players who are much bigger than you. And so he gets away, instead of being suspended like some of his teammates, he gets away with a $35,000 fine. So he wakes up in New York City the next day where they're playing the Knicks. So he's $35,000 poorer. He goes to take the bus to Madison Square Garden. He always takes the second bus. But on that day, for some reason that he can't remember, he misses the second bus and he has to take the third bus. And what happens when the third bus pulls out of the team hotel? It gets pulled over by New York City traffic cops on the way to the arena. So he is down $35,000. He is running late. He is rushed. He goes through his entire warm-up routine. And then he can't miss. He catches fire and he has the hot hand against the Knicks. And it's a game that kind of changes everything for him. And when I asked Steph, was there any way of predicting that that was going to happen? Or do you know like when you are going to be in the zone? What he said is he doesn't know when it's going to happen or where or why or how it's going to happen. But once it does happen, you have to embrace it. I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about this phenomenon of the hot hand is that you never quite know when it's going to strike. But when it does, you have to do everything in your power to take advantage of it. Yeah, there's so many pieces that are really fascinating about that story. If anything, you'd predict that he wouldn't have a good night that night because of all the circumstances that happened before. So for whatever reason, the hot hand showed up for him. That's one piece that I'm taking away. And the other piece is that once the shooting started, once he got hot, felt like he couldn't miss. And I think we've all felt that feeling before. You know, I played some basketball in high school. You played some basketball in high school. You talk about it in the book. I remember my coach talking about one or two players getting hot and how we would change our strategy. So there's a collective belief amongst all the players, and especially the player who got hot, that once you're hot, you have a much higher probability of making the next shot. I mean, you are, like you said, you're on fire. You asked Steph about that, and he said, absolutely. Once you start making shots, you feel like you are sort of in the zone. You can't miss. Well, and in fact, he says that when I asked him if there's anyone in the NBA who does not believe in the concept of the hot hand, he says that he has never met that person. So this is a, a essentially a universal belief among the greatest basketball players in the world. And the result of that is that when they see somebody get hot, it changes, it warps the behavior of everybody on the court. So it's a really powerful force. And it's kind of an odd way to think about it. The NBA is this billion-dollar industry, a zero-sum industry, right? You either win or you lose. And both teams are incentivized. They have the same incentives, essentially. I mean, that can change on a night-to-night basis, but they both come out onto the court wanting to win. And yet, there are 10 people on the court who, when they see someone get hot, their behavior changes. They make different decisions. So if someone is hot, that person wants to take the next shot. His teammates want to get him the ball. The defense is trying to react and adjust and stop him from shooting. His coach is going to call plays for him. And the other coach might call a timeout to try to blunt his momentum, to try to plunge that hot hand into like a bucket of ice, essentially. It's really fascinating to watch this play out in real time, because I think we're all aware of these cognitive biases that affect our judgment and decision making. But to see it on live television with people who are paid millions of dollars to do what they do is kind of striking, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and what makes this story really interesting too for the reader is you you immediately follow up with this paper 
you balance this story out with a very famous paper from someone we've talked about on the show a little bit, Amos Tversky. Tversky has had a lot of impact on decision-making in his research. And Tversky and two other researchers in the 80s wrote this paper looking for the hot hand. So talk about that paper because it's had a big influence, not just on the NBA, but on decision-making. So you're talking about a paper that was published in 1985 by Tom Gilovich Babalone and the great Amos Tversky, Danny Kahneman's intellectual partner and co-conspirator and was a MacArthur genius. And um, if he had been alive, would have shared the Nobel Prize with Danny Kahneman. And in fact, you know, what most people say about Amos Tversky is that he is the smartest person they ever met, bar none. He was just, he was brilliant. Um, he also happened to be ginormous basketball fan. It was like one of the the few things that he really, really loved and and cared about and spent his time thinking about. And so when they published this paper in 1985, which is kind of in the canon of behavioral economics now, I mean, it's, it's, it's a classic. And what makes it a classic is the highly counterintuitive conclusion they found that there is no such thing as the hot hand. It is simply a matter of seeing patterns in randomness where they don't exist. And, and our, it's, it's, it's really our minds playing tricks on us. And that paper set off about 35 years of follow-up studies about the hot hand, not just in basketball, not just in baseball or darts or bowling or golf or any other game that can be considered a sport, but in all types of different industries. Because really what they were doing was trying to understand how we think and how we make judgments and decisions. And this phenomenon of seeing patterns in randomness exists everywhere. It exists in the stock market, of course, and how we invest our money, but how we make all kinds of decisions. And that's sort of what this book takes a wider lens to try to evaluate. It starts with basketball and this phenomenon that, you know, over the last 35 years has been studied through basketball. And, you know, as the MBA writer for the Wall Street Journal, that was kind of irresistible to me, right? It, it, when you get a story where the stars are NBA players and Nobel Prize winners, and it's intellectually dishonest to not write about basketball, that's kind of irresistible. That's like catnip for me. But you know, the reason they studied basketball was because basketball happens to be this really wonderful excuse to explore the rest of the world. And that's kind of what I wanted to do with this book as well. So Tversky and his colleagues go looking for the hot hand, and they, f- they see no proof of it. I think you have a term somewhere in your book, it becomes sort of like the Bigfoot of basketball or of streaks. It's like, where is this? Because as we look at a game or as we experience a basketball game or whatever we're doing, if we get on a roll, we feel something. I don't know, the adrenaline gets pumping, the confidence gets going. So our, it's one of these situations like a lot of cognitive biases where our intuition is telling us one thing, but the rational, logical side of our brain is saying, look, if we're a 50% shooter on any given night, we're still a 50% shooter. We just might have hit five or six in a row. That's really what Tversky was saying in this paper. Basically, th- there was no evidence for this phenomenon. So that opens up all types of questions about whether you know uh, evidence of absence is absence of evidence. And we can talk about all that. But what they found, or what they suggested anyway, was that this was a cognitive illusion that could be costly, right? In the same way that like it's very cool to watch basketball players behave this way. The question is, should they be? Like, are they acting rationally to believe this? And part of the reason why this paper found such an audience was that the hot hand, I think, is something that we can all relate to in one way or another. It doesn't matter if you're Steph Curry or if you're even good at basketball. I mean, you've probably seen it or felt it for yourself, whether it's in 
sports, whether it's at work, whether it's um, really anywhere you go in life, once you start thinking about the hot hand, you kind of bump into it everywhere you go. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some areas in in life or in uh, culture where we do see streaks because you you sort of shift to something you call, I think, the law of the hot hand, which is that when it comes to creators, I don't know, writers, you mentioned some directors, you mentioned Shakespeare, Einstein. There were certain years in their career where they looks like they got hot, like all of a sudden their best work started showing up in bunches. So what's going on there? So this is building on um, fairly recent research from a statistical physicist at Northwestern named Dashen Wang, who looks at really how creativity works. And when he wanted to find out whether there was such a thing as the hot hand in certain creative industries, he went looking for this objective evidence of subjective taste, really trying to quantify something that is kind of fuzzy and um, a little bit esoteric. And so he looked at artists and um, movie directors and scientists, and he went looking for numbers that you could put to the quality of someone's work. So for movie directors, it was IMDb ratings. And for artists, it was auction prices. And scientists, Google Scholar citations. So not perfect metrics, but just about as good as we have. And what he found in all three industries, the overwhelming majority of people he looked at had this thing that he called a hot hand period at some point in their career where their work was elevated compared to their own work. It's not like you're comparing Einstein to a lesser scientist. You're comparing Einstein to himself to see when he is elevating above where he is, where he's being like a superhuman version of Einstein. And so there are all types of examples of this. So Einstein, for one, his his miraculous year in 1905, and Shakespeare in a plague year of 1605 and 1606, which I wrote more than a year ago, it just happens to be unfortunately timely now. And in the book, I tell the story of Rob Reiner's hot hand period, the movie director, which started with This is Spinal Tap and continued with Stand By Me and The Sure Thing. And once he makes those movies, the first three movies that he makes, he has this conversation with a Hollywood executive, some, like someone from a studio who wants to give him money to keep making hit movies because it seems like he is hot, right? He has the magic touch. What happens in this conversation is kind of remarkable. She says, you know, you look like you are hot. We want to give you money because this is what happens in Hollywood. In the same way that in basketball, if Steph Curry's hot, his teammates give him the ball. In Hollywood, if you're a hot director, actors want to work with you and screenwriters want to give you their best work. And most important, studios want to give you all of their money. So she says, you know, whatever you want to make, we're in. What is it that you want to make? And he says, I'm telling you what I want to make, you don't want to make. She says, no, really, like, we'll do anything you want. And he says, no, really, you're not going to want to make this. And finally, she puts an end to this Abbott and Costello routine they have going. And she says, just name the movie. What do you want to make? He says, the name of the movie I want to make is The Princess Bride. She pauses and says, well, anything but The Princess Bride. And it turns out The Princess Bride, one of like the most beloved movies ever made, was this enigma you know, wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a real. Nobody had been able to make The Princess Bride, and lots of people had tried. I mean, Norman Jewison, Truffaut, Robert Redford tried to direct it and star in it. William Goldman wrote it after he wrote All the President's Men and Butch Caston and the Sundance Kid. And like, you could take his grocery list and make an Oscar out of it, right? But for some reason, nobody had been able to make The Princess Bride. And what Rob Reiner did was he took all of the capital that he had for making three hit movies. He leveraged his hot hand 
to do something that he would normally not be able to do. In the same way that Steph Curry can pull up from 35 feet on a basketball court when he's made a few shots in a row, Rob Reiner was able to take this heat check, as it's called in basketball, and do something that he wouldn't have been able to get permission to do otherwise. And it turned out to be a brilliant decision because, you know, The Princess Bride might be his best movie. And once he makes The Princess Bride, he then rips off a run where he makes Misery, A Few Good Men, and When Harry Met Sally. So like those seven movies to start someone's career, like that is what we remember. And that's what Dash and Wang's paper says, is that we are defined by our hot hand period. Our creative work is clustered. Our best stuff comes in bunches. And that is what we remember about ourselves. And more important, it's how people remember us. And it seems like once you get in the hot hand, you can create sort of the circumstances for it to to continue. You mentioned the heat check, which is this idea in the NBA where you're hot and you got, I got to check this out. I got to see if I'm still hot. So you'll pull up from, instead of just right on the three-point line, a heat check shot might be what? Three, five, 10 feet away from the three-point line. Just, hey, let's just throw this thing up and see if I'm still hot. Yeah, because nobody can blame you. Like ordinarily, if you just come up in a possession and you throw up a three from 35 feet, even if you're Steph Curry, your coach is going to call you over being like, what are you doing, man? You know, like you can't do that. But when you are hot, because everybody believes in the hot hand, you kind of have license to do whatever you want. And sometimes that can kind of change everything. And just to kind of close the loop on Shakespeare, you mentioned plague and well, the plague kind of came in and out of London through his whole career as he was writing. But there was a certain year where the plague had an impact on his on his writing and also factors into this hot hand. So can you tell that story too? Yeah. So the plague was this constant force in Shakespeare's life. In fact, some of his biographers think that it was like the most important presence in his life and that really shaped his career. So his parents had lost two children to plague before he was born. The plague swept through Stratford-upon-Avon when he was an infant, and probably he should have died. I mean, percentage-wise, I think seven of 10 kids died in a plague year, and he happened to survive. Maybe his most famous play, Romeo and Juliet, is kind of all about the plague in a way that you kind of don't understand when you're reading it in middle school. But the reason why the most famous love story ever told becomes a tragedy is because of plague. This whole harebrained scheme to reunite Romeo and Juliet falls apart because a messenger that is bringing instructions to Romeo gets stuck in quarantine because of the plague. And it's just one or two lines in the play, but because the plague was such an omnipresent force in London back then, you didn't have to explain when someone says, I got stuck in this house. Everybody understood. And so that's not quite the case in the 400 years in between. I think maybe now middle schoolers of the world will have a greater understanding of that one line. But it was this subtle sentence, really two or three lines in this play that changed everything. The plague also comes into play in 1605 and 1606. Shakespeare had gone like two years without publishing a word. And in the span of a few months, he publishes Macbeth, Anthony and Cleopatra, and Othello. Um, I think it was King Lear. King, King Lear. Sorry, I can't even describe my own book properly. So King Lear, Macbeth, Anthony and Cleopatra. And what changed is that it's a plague year and the playhouses of London are closed. He is not traveling throughout the countryside. He finally has time to write. And the national mood has shifted in a way that the world has kind of evolved back in his favor. And all he has to do is adapt. And that's when he rips off this run of plays that we're still reading 
400 years later. And the question is, was it Shakespeare that changed? Was it the world? Or was it a little bit of both? And I think that it's probably a little bit of both. And that's kind of how the hot hand happens. I think it's this collision of talent and luck and circumstance, right? Because you can be Steph Curry, but you kind of need that one night in Madison Square Garden for everything to change, for people to give you permission to be Steph Curry. Yeah, that's one of the takeaways for me from the book is that this circumstance or luck plays into it. And I hope by the end of this conversation, we can maybe figure out how listeners to this podcast and how we can try to manufacture that in some way if we can. If there's, a, if there's anything we can do to be open to that in our careers and in our lives. So I want to come back to that, but let's keep going because we've now talked about a streak showing up in basketball. The researchers looked to see if there was evidence of it, that there really was a hot hand. They couldn't find it, yet NBA players insist it's there. Then we, we have Wang, who's looking in the research and these creators and seeing bunches of incredible work showing up. So it looks like there's evidence there. Let's talk about walking into a casino and ambling up to the roulette table and just watching people bet. Because when you described the real behavior of people in a casino around a roulette table, it blew my mind because it's almost like the corollary or the opposite of the hot hand is is going on there. So talk about that because I think that's important too. So the opposite of the hot hand is not the cold hand. It's not a slump. It's um, this phenomenon that's called the gambler's fallacy. And Actually, the easiest way to kind of understand the gambler's fallacy is through basketball. And so let's take the example of Steph Curry. You're in Madison Square Garden that night. Steph Curry has made three shots in a row. Everybody in the arena thinks that he's going to make his fourth shot. That's the hot hand. But if you walk into a casino and you go to the roulette wheel and you see the ball land on red three times in a row, what research actually shows is that most people will bet on black the next time. And that's the gambler's fallacy. There's a big difference there, right? It's Three things happen. In the hot hand, you bet on the streak to continue. The gambler's fallacy, you bet on the streak to end. And the question is why? Like, how does our brain come to the exact opposite conclusion? And I think the crucial distinction is one of control. When we are in control, when we have agency, we feel that a hot hand is possible and we change our behavior accordingly. But when we recognize that we're not, when we're at the mercy of chance, when we are simply watching a roulette wheel go round and round, and there's nothing you can do to control it, we kind of come to the other conclusion and we place our bets accordingly. And I think that issue of control is like why people do and don't believe in the hot hand. And so, you know, investing is a really um, interesting example of this because some people kind of think that they're in control when they are putting their money down, but it's not like a basketball court, right? I mean, investing is much more like walking to a roulette wheel in a casino than it is stepping on a basketball court. Yeah, I think it's Malbison who wrote the great paper about skill versus luck in investing. And you're right, investing is like the perfect combustion of these two <laughs> these two laws because it's and that's people why it drives who, people crazy. Yeah, right? it drives people crazy because yeah, you it's people who are investing, yet if you look at the at the data and the track record, very, very few of them can beat the market over long periods of time. So it suggests it's much more like a roulette wheel. And that's and more important when you're giving your money to somebody, it's hard to figure out who that person who can beat the market time and time again is going to be. And so like in some ways, passive investing and index funds are a bet against the hot hand, or at least an acknowledgement that like 
you're not going to get hot in this field where there are trillions of dollars at play and professionals who know much more than you do. You're submitting to the power of the market. And so in the book, I also tell the story of David Booth at Dimensional, who was on the vanguard of the passive investing revolution. And what makes him so interesting to me, you know, he says all these years later, in some way, the fundamental question of, of stock picking and investing is like, do you believe in a hot hand? And he essentially made billions of dollars by saying, no, like, I, I don't think that you can beat the market time and time again. And his background is really interesting. And he studied under Gene Fama at Chicago. But what really appealed to me about David Booth is that he grew up on Naismith Drive in Lawrence, Kansas. Naismith as in James Naismith, the guy who invented basketball. And what did he do when he made this fortune by betting against the hot hand? He buys Naismith's original rules of basketball at auction at Sotheby's a few years ago. So this enormous, incredible basketball fan who is born and lives on a street named after the guy who invented basketball, takes this basketball phenomenon and essentially disavows it in his professional life. As much as he believes in the hot hand in basketball, he knows better than to believe in the hot hand and investing. And I just thought that was so cool. Yeah. And he, he went on to make billions, taking his knowledge and belief that the hot hand doesn't exist and betting that way. I think it's mostly with small stocks or small cap stocks. So basketball runs throughout this whole story, which is great because you're the Wall Street Journal's NBA writer. And it comes around full circle because eventually two economists just can't stop thinking about that 85 paper and their intuition. So let's talk about more recently what's been published about the hot hand. The controversy sort of continues. So there have been two papers in the last five or so years that have really turned the idea that there is no such thing as the hot hand upside down. I mean, there have been hundreds of scholarly papers about the hot hand over the last four decades, but our thinking about it has really changed in the last five years. And coincidentally, both of those papers touched on basketball. And so, as you mentioned, I mean, that's the, that's the really um, great thing for me is that all of the, the most serious consequential work about the hot hand has been through the lens of basketball. The first one was, I think, published in 2014 by a bunch of Harvard undergraduates. So kids in their college dorm who had access to this incredible data set that Gilovich, Bologna, and Tversky in the 80s, in their wildest, nerdiest, wonkiest dreams, would never have been able to imagine. I mean, the data in basketball was incredibly primitive at the time, and it's become quite sophisticated since then, and especially in the last decade. And what they were able to do was actually control for the difficulty of every shot. So we mentioned that when you get hot, sometimes you take heat checks, right? You take crazier, riskier, more difficult shots that you wouldn't have ordinarily taken if you weren't hot. There was no way to control for that in the past. So a layup looked the same as a three-pointer, which looked the same as a three-pointer from 10 feet behind the three-point line. What these kids were able to do was actually quantify the probability of any shot going in because there's a shot tracking data that comes from these cameras in every NBA arena now that can tell you the exact distance of the shot and where the defender was and how good of a shooter you are and how likely you are to make that shot. So once they did that and they controlled for the fact that Steph Curry takes harder shots when he is hot, they found that there is a slight hot hand effect in professional basketball. It's not the fireball of our imagination. If, if anyone has played 
that video game NBA Jam where the ball literally bursts into flames. It's not quite that. It's more subtle. But it suggested for the first time that we were not crazy to believe in the hot hand, this thing that we had all felt and seen. It, it was not our minds and our eyes playing tricks on us. There really might be something there. You refer to two economists. They came along the next year, and they actually found that there was this very, very subtle statistical mathematical quirk in the original research and in the 35 years of papers since then that it, it's very hard to explain. And I would actually encourage all of your listeners to go find this paper by Josh Miller and Adam Sanjuro because they do better than anyone at distilling what they found into plain English. But essentially, for 35 years, if you were a 50% shooter in basketball and you shot 50% when you were hot, that was always taken as evidence against the hot hand. Like Nothing changed when you were hot. When in fact, it's actually evidence for the hot hand because you know in any finite sequence, you're not supposed to make your fourth shot if you've made three in a row, essentially. If you study coin flips and, and simulations like that, there's actually like a downward bias. So when you shoot the same, you're actually outperforming expectations. You know, this is math that has been rubber stamped by you know the smartest mathematicians and statisticians out there. Has been published in Econometrica. It is accepted now by the economic establishment, including Danny Kahneman, who says like, yeah, the original paper like got this wrong, and maybe there is a reason to believe in the hot hand. What it hasn't changed is that we still do see patterns in randomness, and we still do exaggerate the effect of the hot hand, probably. And you're not crazy to think that this is a cognitive bias. But it does allow for the possibility that there are these moments when we are superhuman, these like fleeting times in our lives, the ones that stick with us and linger with us for a really long time. We're not crazy for thinking that either. And so that sort of allows us to toy with this idea of the hot hand and try to figure out where in our own lives we think it exists and where we can take advantage. Let's dig into that a little bit further because I'm really fascinated with how we can potentially cultivate the hot hand or just be open to it, create as many possibilities within our circumstances or to be aware if it does start that we want to stay in that zone. Or What advice do you have for people, creators, you know, people out there that are writing, that are maybe they are picking stocks, whatever they're doing to take advantage of the hot hand in their life if they can so it's a really tricky question because I think that like taking advantage of the hot hand means trying to figure out where you are and if your environment allows for a hot hand or if it actually punishes belief in the hot hand and behaving as if you believe in the hot hand. And so basketball, maybe if you're a recreational basketball player, if you happen to be an NBA player and you're listening to this podcast, maybe take a few crazy shots when you're hot, right? Because there are not huge punishments if you're wrong. If you are um, a farmer, though, like if you have a couple years in a row where soybeans are making you a lot of money, like one particular crop and one particular patch of land, because the weather has been favorable to them that year, that's not really something you can control. And like betting your farm on the belief that soybeans in that one particular patch of your farm is going to be your bumper crop again, might not be the wisest idea. So I think you constantly have to try to figure out if you are in a situation that rewards the hot hand. So like, I'm a reporter, I'm a journalist, and there are a few times, not many, but a few, when I do feel like I am hot, when it's easier to write stories, when people call me back, when I seem to like be on the front edge of a story. 
And those are the times when I just sort of remind myself, like, this is when I have to work hard, not sleep as much and like try to like block out the real world as much as possible. Because the one thing we know about the hot hand is that it runs out. Like you can try to bottle it for as long as you can, but it's not going to last forever. And those days, those weeks, maybe months, if you're lucky, when the world is seems to be clicking and like everything is going right for you, you want to try to like invest as much energy as you can into those moments because they are what defines you. They are what stick with you and they make us happy. That's really what we have found about the hot hand and like flow states. These are times when we feel pleasure in a way that we don't normally. Like there's something about the human condition that I think is actively seeking the hot hand. And so it's it's hard to put yourself in a position to get hot. Like even Steph Curry says, I have no idea when it's going to strike. You just have to remind yourself, like you always have to be on the lookout for it so you can try to take advantage of it when it does present itself. Well, with that, that's a great way to end this conversation. I really, I'm going to be open to getting the hot hand or finding my flow state in the future. And I hope those listening do as well. Ben, where can people find out more about your work and what you do? I am on social media at BZ Cohen, and um, you can just read the Wall Street Journal's sports page where I, you know, I write about the NBA and other sports and not always about the hot hand. In fact, rarely about the hot hand. That's just this book. I do recommend the book. It's really entertaining. Ben goes over a number of different stories and subjects we didn't get to cover in this podcast, but it's just a fascinating story. You'll come away with a better understanding of the hot hand, the gambler's fallacy, how to be careful about trying to find patterns when there are no patterns, and all kinds of nuggets to make better decisions and improve our lives. So I definitely recommend it. Ben, thanks for being on The Good Life. Thank you for having me.